Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, here we are again. This is getting really fun. Yeah, it's good to be here, Will. Our weekly kind of uh, mind collaboration here, like-minded naturalists just getting yeah. to tell stories. And-, and and that's sort of fun for me because even though this is a thriving Christian community, and there are people here that like nature. Yeah. But, you know, I don't have biology friends Yeah, that really resonate from top to bottom from top to bottom amen and so will you're one of the few that i have not only the christian fellowship but the the biology yeah camaraderie that's deeper than say somebody who just enjoys nature yeah that's different amen what a blessing yeah i'm super thankful too and 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 you you suggested a fun topic this week of of getting into some more just describing some of the the more uh, meaningful or or significant animal behavior observations we've gotten to make that we've yeah that we've witnessed yeah not that we've witnessed on a nature dock right we've gotten Although to see in the that field that might be both and for me um, <laughs> that's right know, i saw it on the nature documentary and i saw it in person and i saw but, you doing it in the nature yeah. but uh just just um experiences of seeing animals do something either ordinary or extraordinary but things that you just don't see every day and that most people have never seen yeah it's a special it's a very special experience and we, uh, this wor- one word came to mind to, to maybe start talking about this, uh, animal behaviors, we might call these, uh, animal phenomena, uh, phenomenons, kind of a fun word, just something mm-hmm. that's an observable occurrence in Makes nature. Makes it sound more interesting. It does. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it does have a lot of kind of chutzpah there, phenomenon. And, and we all, and we all see animal behavior all the time and, and, right. and mostly we, we kind of become accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in your house alone, if you have some some pet at all, you probably have gotten very used to certain dog or cat behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know when they're hungry, you, you kind of know their eccentricities like you know your, your child's eccentricities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so all creatures, of course, uh, have these eccentricities and interesting details and they're fun to, they're not only fun to observe, but they're, they're fun to describe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think creative writers out there in the world. We need you in science. Yeah, yeah. we do. Science over the last couple of centuries has become more and more materialistic in the uh, very, very objective. And so some of the beauty of prose has been sucked out yeah. by the leech of naturalism. Uh, so it's, it's describing things accurately in one sense. You know, this specimen A did s- this act yep. to specimen B, but it's uh, devoid of the uh, natural history. Actually, just a hundred years ago, natural or a little bit more, natural history was written in such a way as to uh, invoke wonder mm-hmm. 
and awe. And now, now the writing style, because the sciencey people have gotten specialized in the sciences and they're not always as well trained in the in writing. Yep. So just enough so that they can write it out grammatically correct. And even that is, you know, uh, dubious, but it's just not as beautiful anymore. Right. Recommend just before we get into our stories, um, uh, Fabre's Book of Insects. I think uh, you introduced that to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just uh, a natural history writer writing about insects on the, on the countryside of France and um, just wonderful writing, but also accurate natural history. Excellent. So yeah, we're going to be sharing stories. We're swapping tales yeah. about s- some of the more meaningful or those ones that just got ingrained in your brain. That's um, right. Yeah, I just can't get them out. And so I'll let you lead off here, okay. sir. Well, you know, like I said, it doesn't have to be extraordinary behavior. It can be something as simple as eating. But there are people, for example, salamanders. I was I worked at Liberty University for over a decade. and. Um, we did some salamander research up in the Blue Ridge. And so going up at night uh, after rain, and we were, we were doing a, a, a mark recapture study looking at the effects of timbering on salamanders, but that's, that's, uh, that's beside the, the point. We would be out in, at, at night and all it would be after rain or during a rain where everything in the Blue Ridge is wet and dripping. And we would be counting peaks of otter salamander. Peaks of otter salamander. Yeah. That's and the, a good one. The, they are a, a very, well, it's an endemic uh, species of salamander, only in about 35 square miles straddling the Blue Ridge Parkway Yeah, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And um, when we'd be seeing these guys surface active... You know, sometimes they'd just be uh, trucking across the leaf litter, which was really neat. They were pretty salamander with a very dark background with a metallic gold flecking mm. down the back. So that was just pretty. And they would be all glistening with, they were wet. And so it was shiny and bright, like a well-painted car right after a wax job. <laughs> and I like it. And... And they would be moving, but they were just really beautiful, but metallic flecking. Yeah. And occasionally we'd see these salamanders up off the ground. Uh, They would be either up on the tree trunk a little ways on a sort of a lichen or um, even an algae covered. Sometimes the the bark would have a green hue to it because literally it would be human enough for algae, not just lichens, but algae would be on the bark. And the salamander would be sort of vertical on a vertical trunk, just, you know, straight oh, up and down. And, and well, let me and, just... But then the, the, the prettiest ones, the ones you'd see photos of, like in a calendar, you'd see this peaks of otter salamander draped across this beautiful fern frond, like a foot or two off the ground. And you and guys saw be, that Oh, yeah, as I well. did. Occasionally. Uh. It wasn't very... And it would just be uh, spread out on the leaf uh, leaflets of the fern, just kind of sitting there. And, you know, sometimes you'd miss those because you'd be looking at the leaf litter and not up. The, I think the highest we saw a salamander was head height. 
it was sort of a, uh, I don't know if it was a red bud or a dogwood tree that had a branch about five feet, six feet. And there was, and, and the branch was sort of, you know, size of your wrist yeah. and uh, horizontal. And there was a salamander all the Staring way up Staring you there. in the eyeballs. Yeah. That's, that's really neat. And so- And it just was neat. It wasn't really doing anything other than just being beautiful. And since you have seen a lot of salamanders, and if you're in the habit of looking at these creatures, you know that almost every single time you've seen them, it's been on the ground. And so mm-hmm. the simple fact of having them elevated right. at eye height just changes it. Yeah, because you don't see them at, in the daytime. They'd be under logs yep. usually, and that's where I'd find them because it'd be flipping rocks or logs in the daytime. One other time, I don't know if it was this salamander because I'd seen a number of different species, the, the, the east, the Blue Ridge, and the, uh, that whole Appalachian chain. That's the, is, that's the epicenter. Just, of... That's the epicenter. And down in, um, yeah, and I actually saw a salamander. Usually you catch them either walking or doing nothing, just sitting there. But this time there was a little fly that was just sort of, I don't know, it was a fruit fly or something that was just walking in front of the salamander. Hmm. And I saw the salamander just whip out really fast, tongue extend, hit the fly and gulp it down. And I wow. was like, you don't, you don't see salamanders much. There's people that have lived all their life, their whole life in Northwestern North Carolina, in the Boone area. Yeah. With Taga County. Yeah. Which is the highest, highest number of species of salamanders in the world. In the world, plethodontids. Plethodontids mostly. Yeah, the lungless salamanders. Yeah, that's the highest density uh, or the most speciose area of salamanders. And there are people who have lived there all their life that have never seen a salamander. Because you really have to be sort of a weird geek naturalist to go look for them. They don't just jump up and slap you in the face. You have to look under logs and rocks and stuff like that. So anyway, your turn. Oh, I love it. Well, I was just going to say, seeing a creature eat, it sounds, it sounds almost silly when you say it out loud. You know, we watch our dogs and cats eat. Watch them more closely, especially watch them drink. It's, it's interesting to watch the differences in these creatures. But mm-hmm. seeing a creature in the wild eat, especially a less common creature, it's just such a, an amazing insight yeah. just into their ecology. Yeah. And so that's phenomenal. I've never seen a salamander eat ever. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's neat. Um, my story, uh, I'm going to start and kind of stay in a, in a uh, we're going to move to the north and west. Oh, golly, we'll probably Way head up. a couple thousand <laughs> miles north and a couple thousand miles west, and we'll end up in the Bering Sea. I got to spend a, a summer working there on St. George Island, um, one of two of the Pribilof Islands, they're called. They're about 800 miles due west of Anchorage. And uh, this was for the Fish and Wildlife Service. But not in the uh, Aleutian chain? Or? Not in the Aleutian chain. It's north of the Aleutians, uh, a fair ways. It's an, they're a very interesting, isolated pair of islands there named St. George and St. Paul, uh, named by the Russian fur traders. And a mm-hmm. little bit of history there. The Russian fur traders had done a really good job of trapping otters. Uh, too good a job. They'd really kind of beaten up the otters. And so they were looking for, what do we, what do we kill next? How are we going to make our buck next? And right. so they, uh, the fur seals obviously jumped to their attention, but they had a really difficult time locating the breeding colonies of the, of the fur seals. 
Um, and finally, they, f- they discovered the Pribilof Islands. They're very isolated. They're well north of the Aleutians. They're well west of the Alaskan coast and well east of Kamchatka. And so they discovered St. George and St. Paul Island. And that's uh, one, one of the major breeding colonies of the northern fur seal. And so they enslaved Aleuts. They went to the Aleutians, enslaved the Aleuts, brought them to the Pribilofs, wow. and basically forced labor, kill and skin these fur seals uh, for trade. Oh, man. Yeah. It's a terrible history. It's an interesting history, too. And the whole you know, passage of it being sold to the United States and all that is interesting as well. Um, but I got to spend... Um, I got to spend a summer there. They didn't, they didn't decimate the fur seals to the extent that they had the otters. And so there's significant populations there. I got hired to work on St. George to study seabird populations. And there's really steep cliffs there. The islands may be 10 by 6 miles uh, in diameter or in, or in area. And we were based in this little town called St. George on St. George Island. It's, it's almost 90 100% Aleut population. Uh, there's, a, there's a significant uh, Russian Orthodox church presence there. Everyone has an off at the end of their name, Kasparov, mm-hmm. uh, right. Gastov. There was, and so it was kind of interesting being a minority population there for the summer. There were four science folks that came up for the summer. And my job was to observe these cliff-dwelling seabirds. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, would, we would go out and we'd... Uh, monitor these seabirds. And so, uh, uh, several different amazing experiences there observing uh, the various creatures. Um, but I guess uh, the first one I'll share uh, would have to be uh, just the Arctic foxes. Arctic foxes oh, are found no. on this island and uh, they, they're were daredevils. They in their, were, they, were they in their summer? I, yeah, summer. So, coat? we arrived in May and they were still transitioning from their winter fluffy white fur to shedding all that and going back to their dark summer coats, which were a lot thinner. And so, they looked just ragged. They were ragged and, they, and they're kind of living at the edge of, of uh, the food chain there. They would, they would hang out near the cliffs and try to pick off these seabirds that were nesting on the cliffside occasionally. And then, and sometimes they got too close to the edge. And, and they would fall the oh, like wow. 800 to 1,000 feet to the, to the uh, sea floor or to the to beach, the, yeah, to the the beach there. Beach. Yeah. And so, the, the, the Arctic foxes were really, they became common, but they were, uh, they were neat to observe because we got to see so much of their lifestyle and, and their life cycle. And so, in several places where I set up to watch these seabirds like kittiwakes and murres, uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a significant colony or... I guess, burrow of these foxes. And so we got to watch the pups emerge. Oh, wow. But what I remember the most is the vocalizations. Mm-hmm. You just hear these creatures either- Was wa- it sort of a coyote yip, yip? Yeah, it is that kind of similar coyote high-pitched uh, vocalization. And so that would always be in the background. And they occasion would come out and just kind of check us out as we sat there and observed birds. But their presence was, it was, it was just neat to kind mm-hmm. of see as a, I wasn't, I wasn't there to look at the foxes. I wasn't there You're to right. monitor them, but they made themselves known. Mm-hmm. Um, background ambiance. Yeah, the background ambiance <laughs> of the Arctic fox. Yeah. 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 So that's that's, uh, that's, that's uh, my first one there. That's great. I suppose that transition coloring of shedding the winter coat and bringing in the fur sort of matches the um, patchy snow. Yep. So it sure does. Yeah. So you got snow and then you got ground and that whole transition sort of matches their transition. Almost like it was designed that yeah, way. Yeah. Wow. 
Another very memorable uh, event, again, it was, uh, this was feeding, and I was doing my master's degree in entomology on the Lewiston grade. So, Oh, no kidding. I didn't realize that. Well, this was before I switched. Um, I had some research plots on the Lewiston grade, but I providentially switched from thesis masters to non-thesis masters. That's a good thing because, uh, you know, the runaway truck ramp, there's like three of them on the Lewiston grade. And um, it actually got used. Well, my plot was just downhill from one of the runaway truck ramps. (laughs) And um, right when I switched from thesis, because I wanted to take a broader range of coursework and the thesis forced me to take the rangeland ecology and stuff like that. And I was just very narrow and studying insect communities on fescue grasses. And it was just sort of very narrow and I wanted a broader array of classes. So anyway, I switched uh, to a non-thesis. And it's a good thing too, because this runaway truck hit the runaway truck ramp and there started a truck fire and it, it took out my plot. Wow. Just burnt my one of my plots. I had three plots, but anyway... I was at that plot earlier on before I had, before it got burnt. Or no, it was another plot. I was at the second plot down the hill, farther down the grade, and uh, I um, was netting some insects, getting a, a good sampling of the types of insects on these uh, uh, rangeland grasses. And um, I was I saw this dragonfly cruising, big old uh, eschnid dragonfly, and uh, they're they're a common dragonfly. Uh, it had sort of a bluish, bluish color, lots of different colors, but mostly blue. And I saw this big yellow jacket cruising pretty high. It was about twenty feet above me, and this dragonfly just saw it on his screen and just swooped in like a chicken hawk and <laughs> wham! Wow! Hit this big old yellow jacket right above me, about 20 feet above me, and I heard the crack. Now, normally they take on smaller prey, but and they use their cage-like legs to impale their prey. They use their legs sort of like an insect net. Hmm. And it just dove in on this yellow jacket, hit it, and then stopped on a dime, hit, and hovered like a helicopter, and then proceeded to eat the yellow jacket. Wow. And it ate the head. It it, it, it landed. It's, no, no, it's just it was doing hovered. this on the it wing. Was, it was doing it on the wing. Wow, twenty feet above me, and uh, <sighs> ate its head, ate its thorax, <laughs> all in a dead hover. One part left, kids. What's and that yet, last insect that, part? And that abdomen, head, thorax. There it is, abdomen. The abdomen. I don't know how much it ate of its abdomen, but then it just like I don't know if it hit the poison glands or something for the the venom for the sting, you know. But it's just like okay. I've gotten to the uh, icky parts, doesn't taste good. And then he dropped the abdomen and it, it was memorable because the abdomen fell straight down toward me and landed, landed at my feet. And I was, I was just sort of stunned because I saw, you know, you, as a, a entomology grad student, I was learning all these behaviors, but it was all in the classroom and textbook and yeah. this and that. And then I saw this, you this saw aerial that. predator just swoop in and whack, hit that yellow jacket and eat it more than halfway and drop it. So there you go. That's phenomenal. Another feeding behavior. 
again, these aren't feeding and breeding are the most amazing yeah. phenomena. Yeah. And like I said, some of it you say, well, it just ate. Okay. But it's just something that most people don't see because we're so busy with our lives. We don't stop and look at the inter. We can learn a lot from little toddlers that are hunkered over a crack in the sidewalk oh, looking yeah. at a bunch of ants. They're entomologists. Uh, yeah. And, Absolutely. Um, we need to learn from the little kids that are just sort of riveted at the behavior. It's like, come on, Johnny, you don't need to look at the ants. You know, we, we, um, we sort of tell them by our behavior that, well, there are more, <laughs> there, there are more, other yeah. things. There are other things that maybe you should be doing. Yeah. Right. And, and there may be, um, I'm not saying that's the be all end all, but it's great to encourage kids to allow themselves to just observe behaviors mm -hmm. because that that is the stuff for, you know, when I'm teaching biology, I so much want to connect with the student's experience. Have you ever heard, seen this or ever watched that? But if if their their whole life has just been sitting in front of the, the computer screen or scrolling through their cell phone, there's there's nothing that I can use from their experience to hook their, to grab their interest. Yeah. Because they don't have any experience. Yeah. So the more the kids are out there grubbing around in the dirt, looking at stuff, finding stuff, those are, those are really important for, for biology teachers to, to uh, get them. Absolutely. And those are, those are foundational experiences in God's creation. It's not just that they're out in nature. Yeah. This is God's it's, creation. Yeah, God, they're God's they're engaging in it and actually getting a full orbed view, maybe just for a few seconds, like, yeah. like watching the dragonfly eat that yellow jacket. Go ahead. Your turn. Okay. So uh, this one is fun. This is also in St. George Island. Uh, and so uh, the main creatures we were watching there were murs, common and thick-billed murs, which are, they're a, a type of seabird. They're an alcid. Um, and they're, don't they're, they look like Nerf footballs? They're kind of analogous <laughs> to penguins, actually. The murs right. are. They're sort of a nice. Uh, well, at least some the, of the auklets are a little. Yeah. yeah, the dovekey's a little small guy. The the murs and the uh, the th murs are a little larger, and they have the same coloration as the penguins, but they can fly. Right. And so we don't have a true analog in the northern hemisphere of the penguin. There aren't any flightless seabirds, um, but there are many that are similar in how they behave, how they feed, all that jazz. And so the murs were interesting. For lots of reasons, and I observed them for hours and on end, but maybe two examples of, of special observations of them. There, there are certain birds out there, believe it or not, that their legs are so far back on their body that they actually can't walk. And so loons mm -hmm. are one of those birds. Right. They actually have to take off and land on the water. They can't truly walk. Uh, mm -hmm. Murs are another uh, of those examples. And so the murs would nest on the cliff. Um, they could stand there, they could, they could stand over top and incubate their egg and protect it and then swap out when their mate came back. Well, one day in St. George in the summer, I think it hit 60 degrees, maybe three times. So it is a cold, wet place. It's not in the polar region. It's not above the Arctic Circle, but it's fairly far north. And it's a really kind of what they call a maritime climate. And so really humid and really pretty cool. Um, and what, what did it hit? And I think it hit 60, maybe three or four times in the summer. That was okay. as a high. Wow. And almost always there's a, a 20 to 40 mile per hour wind going. Um, and so that was kind of the backdrop 
And so really lush island, lots of grasses, high grasses that grew almost as tall as your head. And I was walking to one of our plots. We had these plots where we would go to every three days to observe our, our select group of seabirds. And um, this one day, it was often foggy. I was walking along the edge of the cliff, which I knew well the trail was there. You could always hear ocean to the right, and you knew, you knew where you were heading, even in the fog eventually, because we spent so much time there. And in, out of the fog, sailed this object, and it landed at my feet, and it was a myrrh. Okay. And so a myrrh missed the cliff. It was trying to land where its nest scrape was. And a, a nest scrape, when we talk about birds, some birds build ornate nests and some birds are really pretty lackadaisical parents. Right. They just, they might move a pebble or two or a twig and call that a nest. <laughs> and so it missed its nest scrape, a little, a little chunk of cliff uh, and landed too high and landed up in the tall grass right next to my feet. And so I was kind of shocked at first and, and thought to myself, goodness, and, the, and it just laid there. And if, it, <laughs> if, if I would have left it alone, it either would have gotten preyed upon by an Arctic fox, which would have been an okay thing. They need to eat. Or it maybe could have moved itself by pushing itself with its wings. Yeah. But they can't stand upright and walk unless they're on a cliff edge. And so I thought, well, I guess this... I guess I'm coming to the rescue here. So I, I picked up this myrrh, big old bird, and just tossed it off the cliff. And I tossed it, and then it, it sailed away into the, into the, uh, into the Bering That's Sea great. fog. And it, wow. Yeah, it was incredible. So uh, uh, kind of a neat experience. Didn't spend much time with, uh, with the bird in hindsight. I would have held on to it and maybe taken some photos and, and mm -hmm. examined it a little bit, but uh, yeah. let him get back to his business. You know, when I was working on my PhD with the reproductive ecology of the eastern box turtle, I'd mentioned the box turtle before in an earlier podcast, but it was having to do with uh, freeze tolerance, and that had really nothing to do with my research. My research was the reproductive ecology, so yeah. studying everything about nesting, egg laying, reproductive output, that sort of th that sort of thing, and. Uh, you know, most of it was just uh, marking turtles and taking down all the data. But then I would go out and look for them and catch them in the act of nesting. And box turtles would nest in the evening generally, somewhere between mid-June, at least in Virginia, mid-June to mid-July. And after, especially after a rainstorm, so that it would just get everything drenched. Hmm. And then the females that were gravid would start moseying from their normal stomping grounds. Gravid meaning they're ready to mate. Yeah. No. Uh, ready to, ready lay. to lay eggs. Okay. So it's sort of like the word that corresponds to pregnant, but they've got eggs inside. Yeah. And they're, so they're gravid, not pregnant. And uh, they would head to a good nesting site. And this was interesting because... Most of the time, box turtles were in the woods, but they would head to uh, field edges, uh, meadows, open areas, backyards, where they would get more sunlight. Don't know exactly the reasons, but it's presumably more sun to warm the, the soil uh, for incubation. Right. But anyway, I would catch them in the act of nesting. And that was just a wonderful behavior to behold because, first of all, nobody was out there looking. It was dark. I had a flashlight. And 
you could really spook the turtles if you came too close right when they were starting. Mm. But if you kept your distance and they got pretty engaged in digging the nest, after about an hour, you could get close and they were committed. They didn't care if you were right next to them. They would keep digging. Wow. And they would dig with their back legs. And you'd see them rock back and forth, back and forth, scrape with their toenails, and scrape, 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 get a little scoop of dirt, and then dump it. And then the next foot, scrape, 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 get a little scoop of dirt and dump it. They'd and alternate. They would dig, yeah, alternate with their legs and huh. then finally dig down and make a, a pear-shaped or a flask-shaped cavity that went down. So it was a narrower neck, but a, a bigger opening chamber yep. down lower. And the chamber sort of cr- was more under them rather than straight down. So it was like a diagonal pear-shaped cavity and the it went more towards their body okay uh, underneath their body and then after they were finished and it could several hours sometimes up to eight hours they'd be digging and then and you were there the entire time or i'd be checking several several turtles because sometimes there would be a meadow would be a mecca for turtle nesting oh wow so i'd be checking out more than one and uh they would then they would stop, and then sometimes you see them tremble. Their head would sort of vibrate, and then all of a sudden their cloaca, which is the opening, their vent yep. opening, would open up, and you'd see this big white egg just sort of emerge, mm-hmm. you know, and the skin would dilate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'd see this egg just plop out and roll down into the nest. But the interesting part was that after it rolled down in, it would curl its toenails ends and then reach down in with their leg and nudge the egg as far into the nest as possible. Hmm. But making sure that that it would push the egg in with its knuckles, not with its toenails, because it didn't want to puncture the egg. Oh, wow. That's delicate. Yeah. So so how far away are you to be able to see this in, in that much detail? A foot. Wow. And lit up. You're um, up in that turtle's um, business. Um, yeah, and he doesn't care I'm there <laughs> either. She doesn't care that I'm there. And uh, and then they would nudge it forward, and then they pull their leg out, and then, and then, and there goes another egg. You know, three, four, max five for the turtles I'd watched. Okay. And then after they've positioned all the eggs, each one they would just kind of knuckle them in, get them compact in there, and then. After that was all done, they would take the alternating leg sweeps. So the the dirt or the dirt would be pushed up in sort of a sort of a semicircle of of a of a heap mm-hmm. around them, and they would swing their legs wide and scrape the earth back into the hole and cover up the eggs. But then, as they would put in a little bit of dirt, then they again tuck their knuckles, you know, tuck their nails back. And then tamp. Wow. Just, or nudge it, you know, mm-hmm. a, l- a little bit of tamping and then sweep some more dirt in and then tamp some more. Finally, they get it all filled in and then they would just tamp back and forth. And so they're, they would be rocking back and forth. Their knuckles would be tamping the ground. It looked like they were doing an Irish jig. That's um, incredible. As, uh, and then they would wander off after they're done. Start to finish. Yeah, th- Again, some people find that boring, but I just found it just, wow. Riveting. Riveting. Oh, man. 
That's good. Do we have time for one more? One more. If we can pull it off. All right. Last story from St. George Island for me, a third one. And I'm kind of stuck with senses here, uh, feeding and breeding for Gordon and kind of smell and touch and and uh, listening. So my, my foxes were kind of uh, hearing them was really meaningful. And then this myrrh that I got to pick up and toss and get a mm-hmm. handle on. And then now this one was kind of focused on the smells of, of the island. And uh, so a little bit meandering, but I think it'll come together. The smells of the island changed over the course of the summer. And those smells had to do very much so with the creatures that lived there. Uh, and the the kind of dominating presence on the island are the fur seals. And so mm-hmm. there, are, there was one significant fur seal colony on St. George. There were many on St. Paul Island, which is a few miles away to the north. And so the, the colony uh, that we were watching primarily, and, and there, was, there were a couple smaller pockets of colonies, um, but we were watching these, these fur seals and the, the male fur seals, they come back to land and they're just these massive hulking beasts. They've been feeding, uh, they've been storing up food for this, this purpose, really. Mm-hmm. And they come back to land and they, and they sort out the pecking order and, and kind of claim their territory, which is a pretty small diameter territory, usually a rocky shore near a sandy part. And so there are several significant males in this area and they, and they set up shop and they stay there. And they're just nasty, big, humongous creatures. And they don't leave for, say, three months. And so they're defecating and they're fouling the area that they are, are claiming uh, the right. entire time. And so right. over the course of the summer, uh, the smell of the fur seals oh, added wow. up and it started to, especially as it warmed up, uh, the, the island started to take on this smell of, of fur seal feces. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did it smell like a, uh, like a barn? Yeah. It just kind of had that ammonia smell. Really, really like a barn. Exactly. Um, and so uh, that was kind of a backdrop of, of the smell of the island. Um, and one, one in particular interaction with fur seals that I'll mention, and then I'll go to the other smell that was kind of the refreshing a smell that came a little bit later um, was the the fur seals here on St. George Island. There's a, there's a, a hunt that occurs. Uh, that's a legal hunt by the Aleut uh, folks who live on the island. They're considered a, a sovereign nation. And so they have treaty rights and that includes having their own hunting and gathering seasons for certain animals. And so they, there was a, were they living there because they were slaves before and yeah. that they weren't normally there? There's a right. That's exactly right. So these are the ancestors of the of the. I pe- mean the, the people descendants. who were in, Yep. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, yeah. These are the descendants of the of the folks who were originally enslaved by the Russian fur traders. So they stayed and made a living, and the living consisted in large part of halibut fishing and then uh, fur seal harvest. And so they would push a small group of juvenile males up the hill, just kind of gently herd them up the hill. So you don't want to move them too fast or they stress out and that can kill them. But they, they hunted just the juvenile males and they'd move this group to the, to the top of the island and then gather in a circle. And they had these really long wooden clubs and they would just club these juvenile males on the top of the head, really thin skull and nearly instantaneous, uh, they dropped to the ground dead. And so they had a limited harvest every summer. And so we got to watch it and just kind of experience that aspect wow. of the fur seals uh, history. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the, the redeeming smell came when the auklets started to feed their young. 
And in particular, the crested auklets, which are really kind of spectacular little seabirds that have a phyloplume feather on the front of their head. And they have very orange bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, almost all the auklets do. And I, I noticed that when I was going to look at these auklet colonies, that this most marvelous citrus smell oh, wow. um, was present. And so, uh, in a little speculation here, but I believe that the, there were some certain compounds in the amphipods and copepods that these little tiny invertebrates in the ocean that these adults would feed to their young must have been some type of, of citrus compound present as well. Hmm. And as time went on and, the, and, and their, uh, their eggs hatched and the, and the chicks grew, this citrusy smell got, got richer and richer. Hmm. And so it was a nice contrast to the From smell the, of those- uh, smell of fur seals. Grouchy, big old nasty fur seals. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's great. All right. Fun stuff. About wraps it up. I think so. For today. Yeah. Good chatting with you, Gordon. We'll see you guys next time. We'll see you next time. 